Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is free collegial banter. This is created under the influence of caffeine. It's nice to be with you. Uh, my name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I think you know that. And I don't know why I continue to remind you uh, of that fact every time I do a monologue. It's kind of a ritual at this point, a force of habit telling you who I am and where I'm from. Uh, am I a narcissist? Do I need to work on myself? Uh, very excited about today's show. Sam Lipside is here. Uh, he's not actually here with me right now in my apartment, at least not that I know of, but he is here on the show. He is today's guest, which is wonderful news as far as I'm concerned. So let me go over a few things. I want to tell you a story. Uh, I want to read some mail. And then we'll get on with the program. So first up, uh, this story, and, and it's not that long, nor is it that interesting. <laughs> but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. How's that for an intro? Uh, are you on the edge of your seat? So this past weekend, it's a beautiful day here in Southern California. It's 80 degrees. It's sunny. There is a light Pacific wind coming in out of the west. 
And I decide to go hiking, as I often do, and I'm listening to a, a podcast on my headphones. And not my own show, for the record. I was not listening to my own show, which would be sort of monstrously self-involved. That's a bad visual. <laughs> Imagine me walking around Hollywood, California, in a fugue state, listening to my own podcast. So, uh, anyway, I'm hiking, and uh, I'm in the mountains, and up ahead, I see these two people standing at the edge of the trail looking down. And so, naturally, I stop, and I look down, and there is a young woman, uh, probably 30 years old, give or take a few years, and she's about 50 feet down the side of the hill, the side of the mountain, whatever you call it, and she's stuck. And she's not a great athlete, this woman. I think she was Australian. I think that was her accent. And uh, the side of the hill, in her defense, was dry because it's been warm out here. It's the desert. We haven't had rain in a while. And she was just sort of clinging to the dry earth, trying not to slide down this uh, cliffside. So, you know, how steep was it? You know, I don't know how to do this in degrees. I can use uh, skiing vernacular. It was like a blue diamond. Not a black diamond. It was steep, uh, but not incredibly steep. And this woman was stuck there, and her friends, her two friends, were, were standing on the trail looking down at her. And I notice them, and I stop, and I take my uh, earbuds out of my ears, and I, and I say, you know, what's, what's going on? And uh, her two friends like, point, and they say, she's stuck. And so I call down to her, and I say, can I help you? And she tells me that the, the rock is loose. It's all loose rock, uh, she kept saying over and over again. I can't move. The rock is loose. I'm going to fall. And so I'm looking at this, thinking to myself, I'm looking down at this, uh, you know, this decline, I guess you would call it. And I'm thinking to myself, I can do this. It's not that bad. Uh, and also, you know, someone's got to do something. <laughs> like, are we really going to call like a mountain rescue unit in the Hollywood Hills? That seems embarrassing to me. So I say to this girl, you know, or this woman, I say, I'm coming down and uh, I hand my phone and my earbuds uh, to this woman standing next to me and I descend and the side of the mountain is indeed loose. And like the dirt and the rock is sliding out from under my feet as I move, but not enough to make it really that dangerous, you know, for me at least. And, uh, the woman, you know, kind of closes her eyes and turns her head in the other direction because there's, there's dirt and like pebbles coming her way. And I sort of shimmy my way down and I start talking to her in this really self-aware, uh, manner where I'm like, you know, hi, uh, hi there, ma'am. <laughs> my name is Brad. I'm going to get you out of here. <laughs> uh it felt like I was reading off of a script from a scene in a movie or a TV show that I've uh, borne witness to like hundreds of times before. And this poor woman uh, was, was truly scared. She thought she was going to die. She obviously hadn't spent a ton of time climbing around on mountains and, you know, not to make myself sound like, you know, some kind of badass, but I've done a lot of hiking in my life. I lived in Colorado for eight years. I hiked the Appalachian trail for three months by myself so you sort of develop a sense of what you can do and what you can't do. 
and you can sort of learn how to read the mountain. I don't know. I'm sound, and that kind of makes me sound like a dick. Uh, what am I trying to say? I'm just, I'm just saying that even if the woman had fallen, even if she had fallen, she probably wouldn't have died. She might have like dislocated her shoulder or uh, broken a leg or something, but she wouldn't have died. So uh, then, as I'm kind of inching my way down towards her, telling her that this is, you know, it's going to be all right, I hear some noise above me, and uh, this very fit, how do I describe him? He was like a bro. Is that the right terminology? He was shirtless. His hair was shoulder length. He had like five-day stubble on his face. And he comes down to help, uh, and then another guy comes down to help. And uh, long story short, somebody throws a dog leash down, which uh, you know I then procure. And I extend the dog leash to this woman, and then the two guys above me sort of brace themselves against the mountainside, and I do the same, and we form a human chain. And we rescue this woman. And I pull her up using the leash, and she kind of climbs over us in a panic. <laughs> she sort of stepped on me at one point, which is fine. You know, like it didn't hurt, but and she kind of had to based on our formation. So she gets up to the top, and her friends pull her to safety. And by now, a small crowd has gathered uh, on the trail watching this happen. And there's like some light applause. And then the rest of us climb up. Uh, the bro, and then the other guy, and me. And uh, this woman is standing there. She's nearly in tears, and she gives each of us a hug, like a really tight, I didn't die hug. And she says, thank you, thank you, you know, like uh, profusely. And, if, you know, I say, no problem. It was my pleasure. I get my phone back. I put my earbuds into my ears. And I continue walking, and I feel... Good. I really did. I felt really good. Like I felt like I had helped. <laughs> I stopped and I helped. And I should add that there were a lot of people out hiking that day, many of whom did not stop, which is sort of a bummer as far as I'm concerned. So I was feeling kind of proud of myself and I was noticing the genuine good feeling that emerged as I realized uh, that I had, you know, that I had done this. You know, it feels good to do that kind of thing. And so then, like, for a moment, I was entertaining thoughts that maybe I should be an EMT or a fireman. Because, you know, it feels good to help people. It feels good to rescue women. <laughs> I felt like an American hero for, like, 30 seconds. So uh, I did that. That happened. And then just a, as sort of a coda... This is sort of funny and interesting. Like 30 seconds after it all ended, uh, I, I was I resumed my hike, and I was walking down the trail, descending the mountain. And the woman that I saved is behind me with her two friends, a man and a woman, neither of whom, I should add, went down to, <laughs> went down to save her friend uh, or to save their friend. What kind of friends are those? They just stood there, like pointing at her. So anyway, I'm walking, I'm resuming uh, whatever podcast I was listening to, and then uh, just seconds later, I hear a noise behind me, and there's a kind of a uh, yelp. And I turn around, and the very same woman 
that I had just helped, <laughs> she's on the ground. And uh, she had stepped in some kind of hole and uh, had fallen. And she was on her stomach on the trail covered in dust. And her friends were helping her up. And I walked back up to them uh, like incredulous. And, and I was like, are you drunk? <laughs> I actually said that. I asked her if she was drunk. And I, I, I was kind of sincere. I didn't know if she was on something. Uh, everyone laughed. And the poor woman was humiliated. I don't think she was drunk. She told me she was sober. And I, I told her friends in a joking kind of way that uh, maybe they should get her a helmet. And uh, we all sort of chuckled. And that was it. I hiked down the mountain and went home. And I assume, I assume that this woman made it to her car without further incident. So that's my story. That happened. Urban heroism. I felt triumphant. So like, what's the point? I, I think my point is really f like the physiological lesson of the thing. I really did feel uh, purely good after helping this woman. And I guess maybe there was some adrenaline involved, the whole thing. But it did remind me that helping people feels good. I should do more of that. Which then, of course, you know, in my uh, weird mind, brings up the uh, philosophical and ethical dilemma about helping people and how if you know this, if you know that helping people makes you feel good, then is it even possible uh, to be truly selfless when you're helping people? Because uh, with that knowledge, there's always a strong measure of self-interest at work because you're doing the good deed knowing that it's going to make you feel better. <laughs> it's going to make you feel triumphant and self-satisfied and you are going to have a holy glow so there you have it, folks. That's my story. The story of an American hero. Uh, let's do some mail, shall we? A lot of mail coming in from listeners. I really appreciate that. Thanks to everybody for sending word. Uh, I love hearing from you. I love hearing uh, from people and, uh, you know, learning about their experience of listening. So uh, if anybody out there does want to send word, the address, once again, is letters at other people pod. Com. So uh, let me start with a letter from a lady named Leah, a young lady named Leah. She writes, Dear Brad, I mentioned you in therapy last week. It must be weird knowing that you are being discussed in strangers' therapy sessions. I told my therapist, quote, I've been listening to this podcast where this guy interviews writers and barely talks about the books. Instead, asking all this biographical and life-related stuff and always in a way that feels interested and not nosy. Since I started listening to the interviews, I found myself having more satisfying conversations because I'm more willing to just ask people the things I'd like to know. And I find in my life, as on your show, people want to tell you things. They're just waiting to be asked. So thanks for instructing me on how to do this. It's such a gift. Best wishes, Leah. So thank you, Leah. That's such a, a nice thing to say. I'm glad to hear that the show uh, is functioning in that way. That makes me feel good. People uh, opening up to one another. I think I'm all for more candid conversations among human beings. So uh, the next uh, you know, few letters are in response to episode 153, 153, the last episode. 
the doubleheader with Christine Sneed and Stephanie Barber. So a listener named Max writes, and here I should mention that Max writes, uh, writes to me at length after every episode. He's really detailed, uh, critical analyses of the podcast. So Max says, hi, Brad, uh, the Christine Sneed interview went off the rails a bit, a lot of cutting off suspended thoughts, etc. And about halfway through the conversation, it quickly went from guided conversation to tangential political romancing and self-aware ranting. What's more, you had a very tongue in cheek snarkiness with Christine, giving us an unlisty like amount of sarcasm. I'm wondering if that stemmed in part from the fact that you felt you had the higher status in this imagined menage a trois and knew that she would laugh politely at your jokes. It was a bit surprising to see the amount of snideness in your hosting technique. So he, he then goes on to say, uh, the Stephanie Barber interview was a lot smoother because of your similar temperament with the guest. While you may have construed the heavy evasiveness of Barber as a negative thing, I think you gave I think it gave you a great opportunity to showcase your talents as a host. You perfectly tread the line between respect for the author and audience interest. I could not agree more with that last line, by the way. So then uh, a listener named John uh, wrote in with a different uh, viewpoint. Dear Brad, he says, Stephanie Barber, oh my God. I had to shut it off when she announced that she had a fascinating childhood after 10 minutes of inarticulate evasions. I know a lot of visual artists. I know a lot of self-involved visual artists, and Stephanie Barber gives those guys a bad name. I'll probably go back and listen to the rest because you're great even when your guests aren't, but wow, she should maybe consider not speaking to the press ever again. (laughs) It's harsh. He goes on to say, Also, are you aware that you introduce every woman in the same way? Every female guest is, quote, the lovely and talented. If I'm ever on the show, I want you to introduce me as lovely and talented. Sincerely, John. So that's a good point, I guess. I think I get that from David Letterman. Is that right? I grew up watching him. I still watch him sometimes, but uh, doesn't he always introduce women as lovely and talented? And David Letterman's from Indiana, too. So maybe we have some sort of weird, you know, Indiana psychological bond. Uh, Okay, and so then uh, a female reader who prefers to remain anonymous, uh, she wrote to me to shed some light on the whole menage a trois thing from the monologue to episode 153, the mechanics of the menage a trois and how it works. She says, Dear Brad, regarding the whole menage a trois thing, from my experience as a former slut, (laughs) one of the three people in bed simply receives the majority of the attention. Which makes sense. But, you know, it still leaves me thinking along Darwinian lines. I can't help but imagine some kind of competition developing uh, between uh, the two people who who are now vying for the attention of the one you know, the one most desirable person. You know what I mean? At some point, someone's feelings are going to get hurt. They just are. <laughs> and uh, then finally, uh, a nice letter from a listener named Andres. Hey, Brad, he writes, I'm a Colombian German translator slash English teacher. 
Just wanted to send out some love from Hamburg, Germany. I've been listening for a while now and find the show unconventionally inspirational. Whether it'll uh, help me actually write something of any literary achievement or not, time will tell. But just listening makes me feel consistently passionate about writing in general. There's a sincere, not pretentious commitment to truth, which is raw and beautiful and addictive. Keep up the inspiring work. Andres. So, that's really nice to hear. And, and it really is amazing to me to think that people are listening to this uh, podcast all over the planet. You know? Like, the times that we live in may be troubled, and really what times aren't. But, uh, but they can be pretty amazing in some ways, too. The technology that we have access to, the interconnectivity that it affords us, and so on. So, thanks to everybody for writing in. I really do appreciate it. And if I didn't get to your letter this time around, my apologies... Uh, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't read everything on the air, unfortunately, but keep trying, keep sending word and uh, eventually I'll get to you. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So on to the main event. Uh, let's do it. Sam Lipsight you know, to my mind, he's one of our very best writers and certainly one of our funniest. His books include Venus Drive, The Subject Steve, Homeland, uh, The Ask, and now he's got a new story collection out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It's called The Fun Parts. It is available wherever books are sold. Uh, it's terrific. You should read it and you should listen to this interview that I did with him. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Sam Lipsight. <laughs> I'm in New York City. I'm uh, in an office at Columbia University um, in the undergraduate creative writing department. I am not in my office because it's, I share it with some people and it's being used. So I found another office that is also shared, but there's some uh, and there's an opening right now. And I'm looking out a window, and uh, it's a fairly gray day. And a bird just uh, flew by the window. Interesting. Okay, so uh, university teaching, like, how's that going for you? Like, you like the teaching? You find it a, a good complement to the writing life? Or do you ever feel like uh, this is a drain on my creativity, having to read all these students' papers? No, you know, I'm really just thrilled to have a, have a job, <laughs> you know. Um, I would not be able to support myself with my writing, Uh alone so um it's it's just 
I'm incredibly lucky to have a, have a job teaching in New York City, um, where you know where I want to live. So I, I don't consider it a big drain. I do. It's hard to get any real uh, consistent writing done during a semester, um, just because you are swimming in a lot of student manuscripts and teaching and having conferences with students and kind of uh, living through their stories. But, you know, and, but, and, but I also find that it's, you know, not a bad, you know, then I have four months off every summer um, to do my own work. And it, I, you know, I get something from, from teaching and from reading. Well, that's what I was going to say. It almost sounds like it's, it's sort of like an enforced schedule that might even be better than like sitting there every single day, like focused on yourself. Like I can see some upside to that, you know, where you sort of get to uh, let your ideas marinate. You get to be inspired by the work of other writers and, you know, I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you, you sit there by yourself for too long. You, you can go a little crazy and it's nice to, it's, you know, for one thing, it's nice to be in a room with people who care about the same thing you care about. Right. Well, it's, yeah, it's like, I, I always felt like when I, uh, was either in workshops or I was teaching, it's like, it's nice to meet like the other lunatics who do this because otherwise, you know, everyone's off in their little cubicle or their home office or apartment or whatever, and you don't get a chance to interact. I think it's it's a kind of a relief to be around other people who have the bug. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Um, okay, so you're from New York, or you were born there originally, right? I, you know, I I just found I thought I was born here and lived here for two years, but I I just found out from my father that. It was more like six months. So yeah, I was born here, but I, I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. Well, we're, we're breaking news then here. Same, yeah, same. Big, <laughs> I've been living a lie all this time. <laughs> uh, so what was childhood like in New Jersey? Like, uh, what? First of all, where in Jersey? It was in northern New Jersey, a suburban town called Closter, and it was uh, they had good schools. It was pretty sleepy, and um, it was a pretty kind of normal middle-class East coast suburban, uh, experience. I, I think, well, um, I lived next to a reservoir, which, you know, and it was all fenced up, but we could sneak under. And so we spent a lot of formative years, either fishing or throwing things at each other, trying to get, find good garbage. No, I remember like I was reading, you know, prepping for this interview, I was reading, um, probably, uh, other interviews that you've done and you talked about that reservoir and and how you've like tried to get back there in your work but you've never quite found a way back to that reservoir either you know is that like a i mean are you speaking like literally or are you thinking about it like more as like a metaphor like trying to find your way back to like the glory of your youth yeah i, I don't i never want to get too heavy-handed about it because you know i don't mean it to be just this all-purpose symbol of my of lost youth or something but uh, yeah, I, I, I do mean it literally. I think I've not since I tried something in college have I written about that reservoir, and um, and I have written about kids. But you know, I think I could at some point I'd like to do more about that time, that time of childhood, which is more you know not necessarily um, late late teens, but but earlier maybe you know the age of some of those kids in the story in the book called the dungeon master um and there is a i think there's a reservoir scene in that in that story so maybe that's 
my first baby step. Well, yeah, it's funny like how those kinds of like you have those like kind of uh, they take like places from your youth take on like a mythical kind of resonance in your mind. And I think back like when I was a kid, we had a place that we actually called the place. It was like me and my buddies. And it was like basically like a giant mud puddle, but it was like down in a kind of a small ravine off of a bike path mm-hmm. amid, amid the trees, and it collected water down there. And we built like bridges. And right. It was so idyllic. And, you know, I, we loved. And it's where every it's where everything happened. You yeah. Know, um, where you learned how to you know what emotional dynamics and all of those things and um and building things and yeah. So yeah, I think the reservoir is like that for me. So it sounds like a happy childhood, sort of like uh, All-American, you know, fishing. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, we didn't catch much. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's nothing to complain about except feeling at different times, you know, weird in the way people do and and sad in the way, you know, adolescents do um, and, and all of that. But, yeah, I mean, it, it was... It was a very nice place to grow up. Were you like, were you a particularly awkward uh, adolescent, or were you like a quote-unquote successful adolescent socially? I think I became more successful towards the end of high school, maybe. But yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty awkward, um, and there were weird things that ha- You know, there's this weird streak of when in elementary school. This weird, it just went on for like a couple of years, but this weird anti-Semitic thing that was going on that, you know, I've, I've talked to people and they've never heard of anything like it. I think it was just some strange anomaly and with a couple of kids in this town, but you know, they'd throw pennies at, at your feet and say, pick it up, kike and stuff like that. And, um, Jesus. And it was just seemed weird because it was, you know, the 1970s and it's not, and just, that wasn't really happening too, too much. Um, as I said, I, I, I've mentioned it to other people. They don't even really believe me because it's just, it was kind of a rare thing, but it just happened to be. But when you, when you look back on it, I mean, like, were these kids uh, aware? Like, did they have enough historical context and, like, understanding to even know what they were doing? Or were they just... No, I don't think they had any idea what they were doing. I think some probably some freakish uncle told them to do it or something, you know? Right, right. And then it was, it was just basically a way of bullying. Yeah, it was just another kind of bullying. I don't think they had any real, you know, idea of of what they were saying. Yeah. Well, and your uh, your parents are both writers, so you were sort of born to this in a way, right? I mean, it's a well, family, it's a family business in a, in a sense. In, in, a, in a in a way, I think what I the, the great advantage was that I grew up seeing people just go to their typewriters and do it. So it didn't it didn't have that strange aura that can you know and some people are born into families where it's it's an insane notion that you would want to spend your time you know doing imaginative writing or any kind of writing but um so i i just i it's like you know if you're if your dad's a, a ball player and you hang out in the clubhouse or something right like you just see it you see it as a day-to-day routine in, in people's lives and so it's not it's not such an alien concept. So were they were they molding you? Like, can you think back and like you know there were like no. explicit instructions, or were they kind of nudging you in this direction or encouraging your talent? Like, what was your relationship like with them relative to the path you ultimately took? Well, I think I I looked up to them and admired them and learned you know probably picked up stuff from them, but they were very hands off about 
pushing me or even gently nudging me. Uh, they, I think they understood correctly that was something, you know, there are any number of writers who have kids and, um, you know, it's got, it ends up being not really about that. It's an advantage if you do become a writer because you're probably growing up in a house full of books and people might be talking about writing, but, um, it's really, it's really about something that happens in certain people and not in others, some drive or some, uh, need to do it. My my sister grew up in the same house and is decidedly not a writer. What does she do? She's a lawyer. Okay. But there's there's kind of a writerly bent to lawyers, I find. Yeah, I'm sure. And she's probably, she is a very good writer, but I mean, I think she's always not wanted anything to do with, you know, what we were talking about in terms of. She's like, I want to make some money. (laughs) Yeah, that too. And we, you know. We always were grateful for that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's good to have a lawyer in the family. You never know. You know. Except then she became one of those kind of do-gooder, doesn't-get-paid-much lawyers. So uh, it's such a waste. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> just go be a – you know, what is the best kind of – what is the best kind of attorney to be? I wonder what that is. Like if you just want to make cash, what do you do? Like, you know, a corporate yeah, attorney? I, like, uh, some kind of – I guess you just work work for the man directly. Yeah. That's what you should have done. Yeah. Um, okay, so what you talk about this drive that you recognize. You know, I think any writer listening to this show uh, would relate to that. I certainly yeah. do. Like, when did you start to feel it emerge in yourself? And then, like, who you had to have had encouragement along the way. Like, did you have any teacher, like a specific yeah, person? Yeah, I had. There were some teachers in, in uh, middle school and grade school who recognized that I was really into this and uh, and encouraged me. The teacher I had in high school named uh, Mr. Wright was very uh, instrumental in that. And I, then I sort of, you know, started, as as we all do, I got very hungry to know what had, what, what had been going on out there. And so I, I started to read, you know, just read on my own and go to the library and try to find out what, you know, what connected to what. Um, same way I think I probably did with, with uh, music, you know, you find out about one band and that leads you to another band. Sure. Um, I think it was the same thing with books for me. And, um, but I think there was also the strange, because I did come from a writing family, it was like a lot of, Oh, you're following in their footsteps. And I, I really hated that because, you know, no one, not that anyone else could see this, but in my mind, I was this unique, distinct entity and um you know what did they what did whatever they do have to do uh what did what did their writing have to do with mine you know not that one was better or worse but just you want to stand alone right sure yeah well i mean you, and like i was going to ask you about that because your father's a sports writer correct and yeah that was his yeah. trade and then what your mother wrote as well yeah she was a journalist mostly but she she published a novel at one point okay so but like did your focus on fiction or your aspiration to be a writer of fiction that was, was that rooted you think in kind of a, uh, a desire to establish your own identity and maybe, yeah. And maybe well, I sure as hell, I sure as hell wasn't going to be a journalist. Okay. Yeah. For that reason, because I didn't want to do what they were doing. Um, and my dad did write a, bu- a bunch of, uh, young adult novels. Um, but I, I, you know, I try, you know, you have to try to fight for your own identity and all of that, I guess. Sure. Um, and so, and then I would start to, 
I remember in high school I was writing pretty seriously, and I, you know, submit to these various regional contests and you know, win a dictionary or something. Um, and 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 then this then became a kind of little bit of a show pony for the school. Um, so you're like an achiever. An achiever, yeah. And here's our writer. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that was again kind of a confusing time. And it got to a point where I, I stopped writing because I'd lost the thing that was driving me and was now filled with these expectations from other people. And, um, and it took me a while to, you know, it took a bunch of experiences, um, to wake up to the notion that in the end, nobody cared. And that I had, you know, it was it was still it was really only about my desire because no, no nobody else wakes up in the morning thinking, boy I hope Sam figures out that short story he's working on. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how we can trick ourselves. <laughs> like even now that you're like, you know, you're a, a, a by any measure a successful uh, writer of fiction and you have a readership, uh, you know, but it's still like, I don't know. I, it gets confusing sometimes to you, yeah. you can trick yourself into thinking that people really really give a yeah. shit and are sitting there like waiting with arrows you know? exactly they you know no they're when they see oh there's a if you have a writer that you that you like to read and you see that that writer has a new book coming out you, you might get excited about buying the book but you haven't been spending years while the writer is writing i'm that i you know i'm sure maybe some of the huge million selling writers have people like this but you know, in general, nobody's, as I said, getting up and saying, I wonder how it's going over there. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get fans emailing you for status reports on a daily basis? Or no, it's strange. It's really yeah. strange. If you want to, like, uh, publicize your email address, we can try to gin that up. Via yeah, the maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, so just to kind of continue to track the biography, like, you leave high school and you go to Brown. Is that right? right? So, mm-hmm. so good school. I mean, that's a kind of a nice literary history. It seems yeah. to produce a lot of good writers. And um, what was the what were you like in college? Like, how was that experience for you? I probably I was just a lout um, or a fucking idiot. But I remember it all very fondly. Uh, and there were some there were some really great people there, like Robert Coover. And, and others, and I made made some great friendships, and I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of of books, a lot of different kinds of fiction, and so yeah, it was um, it was really it was really a, a a wonderful time in that sense. I took writing workshops. I I I just I learned a lot about about what you know the liter, literary history. I did. I also read a bunch of theory and uh and and drank <laughs> well i was gonna say but it sounds like you I mean, you got an education like because me, me i look back on my four years of undergrad and i just wince because you know it's not that i didn't learn anything but i could have learned so much more well know. i still feel that way completely and okay. you know i would you know we I'm sure you have the fantasy of going back and just oh, soaking God. everything up. Oh God, yeah. Just being the true sponge, and I would love to do that too. But 
I mean, you know, you get what you can get, and a lot of the, you know, you learn from your peers a lot too, and that was a big deal for me because I really was very private uh, until the end of high school. I was very private about, you know, I didn't tell people I was writing fiction in my town. That wasn't, you know, what I went around talking about. That wasn't like your lead move with with the girls. No, no, and you know. I mean, I, looking back, there were probably a couple people that would have appreciated it, but, you know, I, I was very shy about it. But when I got to school, you know, I met at least a few people who who were passionate about it as well. And so that that in and of itself was, was, a, was a huge relief. Well, I mean, just the fact that you started writing fiction in high school seems early to me. That seems a little bit... Uh prodigious to start that young i think a lot of us don't get started until we're adults yeah you know and a lot of it was sort of you know kind of technically accomplished bullshit but it was just you know i I could study new yorker stories and try to imitate them or something like that right but it wasn't you know I don't think it was the real deal but i was learning it's like you know learning music right, yeah exactly well that's the thing is that like I think sometimes people who are, are just starting out, I know I, I kind of felt this way, is that you, you, know, you have this idea in your head that you've got to find your voice and you have to become this kind of distinct individual on the page. And then um, you, know, you sort of feel bad about the fact that you're just miming like Raymond Carver or whoever it is and doing a really shitty job of it probably. Right. You know? But that's just, I mean, how, how do people but learn? I think, yeah, I think that, yeah, go on. I was just going to say, how do learn, people learn to play music? They start by covering other people's songs. That's the way it goes. Exactly. I, I agree. And, and who are you to have a voice then anyway? Right. You know, I think somebody, some short story writer that I like, maybe Mark Richard said something about, you know, no one should publish a book before 30 anyway. Um, but, yeah, certainly when you're young in high school, you don't, you don't have a voice. You might have some... You might be able to uh, put together some sentences that have real energy and and that feel fresh and exciting, but it, it's not going to sustain itself, I think, until you've maybe lived a little more. Well, that's what I was going to say is that, like, I think I've, like, you know, I was just thinking of, like, Jim Carroll or somebody who, like, had this kind of lightning in a bottle publishing experience where there's all this youthful energy on the page and it's basically his diary, you know? Or, right. And that kind of stuff can be really affecting. And I think, like, you know, writing by young people um, that's written in, like, a fit of real emotional intensity or whatever can sometimes be really wonderful. But like you say, like, where do you take it from there? Like, eventually you have to do the hard work to kind of develop as a writer and, and really get into however it is that you're going to sound for the long haul, you know? I don't know. Right. I think. I mean, I, I agree with that because that that particular energy is sort of has a, has a shelf life and then, and then you're going to need other resources and that just comes from practicing and like, you know, usually failing, you know? <laughs> oh, well failing 80% of the time. Yeah. So, more. so what were your, okay. So just to, to kind of continue the thread, like you're writing in college, you're getting a little bit more open about the fact that you're doing this uh, and then, like you know, the, your twenties, like that was a long period of trial and yeah. error and struggle and what? Yeah, well, I think for a few, like from the end of college up until about twenty-five, I, I, I kind of grew a little disgusted with myself. 
Um, in terms of writing, I felt I'd hit some dead ends. And, um, and for a while I was just doing other, I was working various jobs and, you know, screaming in a band. Yeah, and, like um, Dung Beetle, right? Yeah, the immortal Dung Beetle. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and I, you know, I love doing that. But, um, again, that was something that couldn't sustain itself. And so uh, I really, I, but I, you know, so a couple of things happened. I sort of cleaned up my act a bit and, and then my, my mother got very sick and she would, I guess she was, you know, starting a two year dying process, but I was, I was sort of her caretaker for a lot of that. And, um, and around that time, I also kind of got very serious again about, about writing and, um, I had had a couple of stories taken by short pieces taken by the editor Gordon Lish, who uh, edited at that time a, a version of the magazine, The Quarterly, which I, in college I had was my favorite journal, and I would send stuff to it and get these, you know, get a lot of rejections. But he finally took a couple little things and and then uh, invited me to his class, which he taught in in New York. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. That's got, that that sounded like a kind of formative educational experience. Yeah, and so that really just kind of blew everything out of the water for me. And um, because he was very good at not just telling you about writing, but telling you kind of how to think of yourself as an artist, how to kind of conduct yourself, and how, you know. How should I conduct myself? Well, <laughs> yeah. I think the, the the real main notion was, you know, he boiled it down. Actually, he came to Columbia the other night and did a wonderful talk. And um, I think, you know, he boiled it down to just give a shit. <laughs> and uh, I think on a, on a certain level, that's maybe what all of the teaching was about. But he he got you excited about giving a shit because he had such a, a great ear for the language and really sort of. Uh, taught you to teach yourself really in the end how to how to listen how to listen so that uh how to listen to the language as it's spoken and how to listen to yourself when you write um and find all the crevices in 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 that body of language where you might sort of uh nestle a little bit and start fucking things up and so when I, like, I mean, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like you pair that experience with uh, the loss of your mother, and like it, it gave you, a, you know, like a renewed focus. It yes, did yeah. It, did it break? I mean, it sounds like it broke you or helped you break it, through some sort of wall. Yeah, I certainly did, and it also stripped me. I think I was I picked up some bad writing habits, and really, what I just mean is kicks or tricks that I thought would just carry me through. Um, just that sense that, well, it's good enough, you know, no, and no one's going to, no, I'm the only one who'll notice, uh, where it's weak and I'll get away with it. That kind of attitude. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, if you're even thinking of that, no, you won't get away with it. Everyone will see and don't delude yourself. You have to work harder. And, you know, I think I'm, I may sound a little bit like a nutbag right now, but um, I think you do have to be 
pretty tough on yourself. Okay, so okay, and I agree. I think that's exactly right because uh, it's just hard. You know, it's hard to do. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be necessarily easy. It should require work. But how do you balance the reality of needing to be hard on yourself with not being so hard on yourself that you wind up um, unable to produce? Yeah, right? like self-flagellating to the point where you're just like completely stuck. Well, that's the that's the million dollar question. That's I think you find that balance for yourself mm. after a lot of trial and error. And you've got, um, and you've clearly got because you have to you have to be able to loosen up. You're right. You have to be, you have to be able to stay loose. I think that it, you just, I kind of think about it in stages, so that it's really in the editing and the revision where um, it's time to get tough. You don't have to beat yourself up every time you write a word on a page. Yeah. But I just I I read this great. Uh, quote in a reading a, an essay called Writing by W.H. Auden. I don't know if you know this essay, but uh, you know, he says, we, you know, we all have this internal censor, right? Um, but the, they should actually be, it should actually be a group of censors. And I think he named some of them. You, you need a, a sensitive only child, a practical housewife, a, uh, a monk, a logician, uh, and a reverend fool. I think there was another one. And then lastly, you needed uh, a, a, a brutal drill sergeant hmm. who thought, and he was talking about poetry, who thought, who hated all those other people and they all hated him. And he thought that uh, poetry itself was rubbish. And if you, you know, put them all together, you'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need. Just yeah. 11. You know. <laughs> right, exactly. So you might have to you might have to rent a room, but you know. <laughs> so what does it look like for you then? You know, I mean, if you can kind of give us like a a sketch of your you know the process that you take yourself through. Like, are you really permissive on an early draft, uh, or is there some? Yeah, well, I'm just I'm just following sense by sense, and I'm not I'm not committing I'm I'm not committing I'm not drawing up schematics I'm not you know I'm just seeing where this thing starts to go, and you know just doing that. The first draft is discovery, right? Just and not get not being hung up on whether it's cohering or making total sense. Just kind of seeing seeing what I'm thinking, finding out what I'm thinking, um, and then and then you can st- as you go, you do. Pro- I think if it's something that's going to work, and often you just hit a wall. I, I hit a wall and throw it out often too, but and I maybe waste a lot of time and throw out a lot of pages, but it's it's how it is for me. Um, once I start to see the shape of it and what it might be trying to do, then I can set up some parameters. And also then that's when I know what it's not. And I know it's not about cowboys, for instance, or um, it's, it's not going to take place in ancient China, that sort of thing. Sure. And do you have, like, at what point do you hand it off? Do you have, like, a... a a person who's always like your first reader do you have somebody who's kind of like you know does this suck you know like do you hand that to someone at some point like in, yeah that's, and, usually that's my wife and when do um, you do that like at what point and then afterwards maybe a few friends but i i really stay with it you know keep it to myself for a while yeah and i you know go through some drafts and then i'll show her something um and she's you know for the for the ask 
she kind of, I, you know, I threw out 200 pages after she, she read, uh, read them. Um, and, uh, bless her. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> it worked out in the end, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, so it's, I think, I think you both, you don't want to show it too soon because you know, you don't want to get too many other opinions in your head right away. You want to give yourself time and space to, to explore the thing, and then when you then when you feel as though maybe in maybe in the, in a few weeks or months you'll have an idea of what to do next, but right now you're just kind of sitting there and you don't know what to do. That's when you can show it to somebody. Yeah, it's such a delicate process. Like I think, um... and I'm a baby about it too. So how so? Well, I mean, you know, it's not like I just sit there and say thank you, dear. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm just receiving trap. This, this, this has been most enlightening for me. <laughs> yeah, you got to push back a little bit. It's hard not to. Yeah, you know. right. Um, yeah, but, who asked you? <laughs> but, you know, it's like I think about um, people who, you know, wind up producing really great work, especially when they do it consistently uh, book to book as you have done. Uh, and I just think about artists in general, whatever, you know, their trade happens to be. So much of it is just about making good decisions. And it's, it's not just like creative decisions on the page. It's like decisions about timing, like when to show it to somebody, who to show it to, when to sit down to revise, when to know that it's a good time to step away because you're not in the right mood. Or Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah. It's, and a, that, it's a million of those. It's a million of those. And some of them seem really big and some of them are really small. And the small ones actually can be really big. Yeah. They add up. Yeah. And you know you, you know you take something in a certain direction, and maybe you're feeling uneasy about it, but you're also feeling, I haven't quite figured it out. Maybe I'll get to the part that'll make it all make sense to me. And you know you can keep doing that forever. And so when do you stop doing that? Right. When do you come back to a new, to another, to a new starting place? You know when do you? There are a million things like that. You're absolutely right. So, do you think that the good instincts that you clearly have? I mean, because you, you know, clearly, if, if you're if you're publishing well, like you've been doing and having um, success with it, then you, you know, I think it's fair to say you have a, a a pretty good sense of your own work. And my question is, do you think that those instincts can be honed and developed, or do you think it's something that you have kind of innately? Or I guess maybe it's both. I don't know. I uh, maybe maybe there's something that some people have innately, but, or it's something that's been kind of brought out, you know, the idea that, you know, everyone can play music, but you know, I can't really play music. And I'm, um, so that part of me has not ever been sort of brought out. Um, but I did, you know, I think it just, you know, came from a lot of reading mostly and practicing writing, you develop an ear right mm. um and it's like it's much like a musician's ear you you know you hear language and you know when it's clumsy and you know when it's not you know when it's getting at the heart of things and you know when it's evading things and and, and you know when it's it sounds good and you know when it doesn't and um so that i don't know if that's innate or just something that you kind of develop early um but then the rest of it i think is just practice and I really, you know, the the now famous Gladwellian 10,000 hours is is actually pretty accurate. 
Yeah, I think so too. I mean, you know, you have to. It just basically means you have to put in the time. You know, <laughs> right? And I mean, cause, because even in my students, I, I, you know, there's talent, but I see a lot of talented people just never get past a certain point. Why do you think that is? Because they don't want to do the work. Yeah. I think there's a lot of writers out there who don't, I mean, obviously don't want to sit in the chair and do the writing work, but I think also they don't do the reading work. Well, that's a huge part of it too. And, you know, you hope that you got, you know, you've, as you're writing, you've, that you've already done some reading and then you're continuing to do, continuing to do it. You know, it's a lifelong interaction, your reading and your writing. What about, okay, so... You don't, you don't read a certain point and say, okay, I don't need to do this anymore. Well, I was going to say, because all, yeah. all the instinct and intuition that goes into knowing when to, like, step away and knowing when to sit back down and knowing when it's done, um, you know, the tools that you use to make those decisions don't remain eternally sharp. You know what I'm saying? It's a constant process of maintenance. No, that's, I, I agree with that. That's really smart, actually, because... And you get that, I think that maintenance comes from reading. Of, yeah. So here's a question for you, then. Um, with regard to reading, because obviously we live in this new age, um, this digital age. I think a lot of us, if we're being honest, read predominantly online and in short bursts. Um, you know, not, not everybody, but I think most of us who sit in front of a computer for any number of hours during the day fall into that. Do you think that that blunts the instrument or do you think that that can keep it sharp in a different way? Well, I mean, it can keep it sharp for doing that kind of writing, I guess, um, which is, might be very short. Um, and are you talking about reading fiction on, or, you know, serious nonfiction on, on the internet? Yeah, it's like long reads, nonfiction, article, you know, straight journalism to really good yeah. short fiction on the New Yorker website or whatever, you know? Yeah, you know, I don't know, I don't really know if, if, if it's people creating forms and, and using the language in an interesting way and saying things in, uh, in, a, in a compelling manner, I, I don't see a big difference, actually, between a, a book and a, and a screen. They're just their delivery systems, right? Yeah. It's still, we're, it's, it's, are, we, are we still interacting with, with, with language? The, the same way I think we are maybe there's more eye strain <laughs> sure you know or better, um, just the constant like hunched over the keyboard so it's hard to read a novel that way it's hard to sit at your laptop and read an I well maybe that's for just me but something longer I, I, I don't know if I can do it on a screen on I don't have any uh, what do you call it a Kindle yeah yeah I was going to ask and maybe that's, you know, maybe I'll have to have one at some point. But, you know, I, the book is, seems to me a, a pretty beautiful system. It's really, um, it's really nice to just have that time and, you know, to unplug. I mean, it's underrated, I think. <laughs> yeah. But if you're going to, you know, if you're going to read, uh, the, the stories of Chekhov in a book or on the screen, I don't think that really matters. Unless, you know, the screen is getting really uncomfortable. But if you're going to, it's a choice between reading a book of, of Chekhov and reading uh, 
capsule reviews at Entertainment Weekly or something <laughs> on the screen, then there's a problem. Yeah, and I just, I guess, I guess, I just feel, and it's hard to talk about because I can't like define it yet, or I just feel like there's, there's, there's like some sort of marriage between those two that feels like it would have to happen because of the, you know, art reflects life, right? And that just seems to be like how people are living these days. And the question, I guess, is like, can a quality literature be produced that like reflects that or deals with that in a way that feels honest and uh, true to the moment or something, you know, as opposed to... Well, if you look back, you know, Dickens, those books were written in serial form and to sell newspapers, right? Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that art does come to the technology. I, I'm just not sure if, I mean, the thing, the thing that's, that, that writing does is, is this very distinct, wonderful thing that, that there's a kind of the speed of association and the, the, the depth of, of consciousness that you can get to, and also the wonderful things that can happen on the surface with the language. Um, they're not available in other... They're not, you don't get that from movies or television, right? Right. So, you know, is, by just going onto a screen, are you, are you, the question is, 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 is that just not going to be something people derive pleasure from anymore? Because it's a visual culture, that might be what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, so, but, but I mean, if you're someone, you know, you like to read fiction, so you're going to read fiction, and if it's only available on 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 the internet, you'll read it there. If there's something you want to read, and you can only read it on the internet, you'll read it there. But um, you know, I prefer obviously I prefer books, but. Is it wide? You know, is are people going to read less? Is the question more than are they going to do it on the computer or or not? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like interesting. There's like all these arguments when you think about like epistolary culture, for example, and how you know there was a period because I was born in '75. I think you were mm -hmm. born a bit before me, but like, yeah, you know, I think there was a period like for most of my youth where there was very little happening in terms of like epistolary exchange, and then. You know, then you have email and text messages, and now people are writing to each other way more than they did when I was a kid. Um, yeah. Except for, like, passing notes in class. Otherwise, it was just call them on the phone and then, like, go outside and play or whatever, which has its merits. But, you know... No, exactly. So, so people... I mean, it's a kind of golden age for for people using language in that way. Yeah. I mean, you know, so there's, there's different ways to sort of look at it. And um, I'm curious, like, you know, with the kind of books that you write and the tradition that you seem to be operating in which I think is like really like well and deeply rooted, but yet is also kind of of its time. Um, like how much do you have to be vigilant about your media intake? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, are you really disciplined? Do you set up rules for yourself? Like, do you know, do you like, are you a person with no TV? Are you a person who doesn't have a smartphone? Like, or, or is it easy for you to stay away from that stuff? I stay away from that stuff, when, you know, when I'm writing, but no, I have a smartphone and I watch a ton of TV. Okay. Um, and I cruise around on the internet all the time. Um, but, I, you know, one of the, the pleasures I get from television, I mean, there's some great TV out there, but there's also, you can hear, one of the things that I'm always interested in in fiction is kind of playing off the official narratives and the official language. And it's all there on television for you. Um, 
how we're supposed to be saying things and how we're supposed to be thinking about things. You know, and I'm not necessarily talking about you know some cable series, but just ordinary television, just the way people talk to each other on television, you know, on reality shows or whatever. Um, what like that influences how you write dialogue or something? Like, oh no, no, no! It doesn't influence how I write dialogue, but it makes me, you know, it's good to know what what the banal is, right? Um, and to play with it. Because we get, you know, we do, we we are infected by this stuff, and we do start using terms and and phrases that are just circulating either on the internet or through television or, or from various sources, and and they start to speak us, and we don't, and and with, you know, we uh, we 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 sometimes use them unthinkingly, um, and so it's just it's just. I find it just fun to, to and interesting to, kind of know what's kind of flying around a little bit and uh, and play against it in some way or or reveal a little bit so, but for the ways the ways that it's telling us things. And you know, here's like the dumb example is you know the difference between the word torture and you know enhanced interrogation techniques. But, okay, so you you broke up a little bit there. You said the difference between torture and enhanced interrogation. Yeah, enhanced interrogation techniques. Yeah. yeah. The language of uh, the military, like I, like target of opportunity. I remember that one from the Iraq War. Yeah, <laughs> it's freaky stuff. <laughs> you know, the target target rich environment. Right. Um, <laughs> but then there's the there's mil, I mean military is one example, but you you know you get it from you get it from the way that you know. Uh, uh, you know, I was overhearing two people talking about a third person who's a, 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 a medical doctor, and she was saying, you know, it's funny to hear her talk. She talks, she doesn't say her patients, she says her consumers. Hmm. It's just, you know, you're just listening. It's just about listening to the language around you and being aware of how it's getting mutated in, in different ways for different purposes. You know, well, that sounds like all. it sounds like a really. Const- I mean, it, it sounds first of all like you don't have like the media addictive tendencies that some people do, where it's like all of a sudden like eleven hours have gone by and they've watched like an entire season of a show on Netflix or like you know they're checking Facebook like a hundred and seventy four times a day or something like that. Well, that's one thing I I haven't done Facebook. Yeah, I just I just quit, you know, and like I don't mean to sound too proud of myself because i know there's this whole like you know it's like this reverse thing where like now people who quit facebook are snobs you know like culture right yeah i just had to stop because i couldn't stop going to the fucking site like it was sucking up way too much of my time you know and that's just and but yeah and i i didn't i never did it but not because i thought i was above it because precisely i knew that i would be sucked in yeah yeah so and um i want to talk to you uh like you know it seems to me you know and i think most people listening would agree that you know, uh, you're a writer who has made it. You're published by FSG. Um, you've got a, a deal at HBO. Is that right? You've got a, like a show, at least some some sort of development deal there. Well, no, uh, no. They they a couple of years ago they bought a pilot script. Okay. So, and then that that fizzled. So there's the, nothing happening there. Well, as those things sometimes do. But still, that happened. You know. So. You yeah, know, you, you may you very very well received critically. Um, it, you know all of the things that I think a lot of us would look at and say, well, that you know once this has happened, I can check that box, and once this has happened, I can check that box. You've checked a lot of those boxes, uh, and I'm curious to know, like, do you feel any sense of comfort or that you've made it? Do you feel like a sense of that, or do you still feel like 
you're struggling or, or trying to define yourself? Yeah, I do feel that I'm struggling, but in a good way. I, you know, I never thought of them as, as, you know, at a certain point, yes, I thought I'd like to publish a book. And I thought, once I publish a book, everything will be easy. And, and, uh, my life will change completely. And, you know, as we all know, that's not what happens, um, usually. And, uh, but it was kind of a, it was kind of a, an encouraging feeling too. It meant that, you know, you always want to be, in a state of, I believe, at least I do, I don't want to feel static or that I've reached some plateau. I, I'm interested in pushing myself and seeing what I, you know, what I can do. And, um, so it never, it, it never feels as though, you know, I've arrived because I'm still thinking about what I want to do next. Um, but yes, I've been able, you know, the reason I, the reason I have this job at Columbia is because of the, because I've published some books. And so I have, you know, things have gone well for me. And, um, and so in that sense, I feel a lot more secure, uh, than I did when I was young. And, and I mean, now I'm still broke a lot, but it doesn't have the des- the desperate feel that it did when I was younger. <laughs> It's a new kind of brook. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, um, you know, failure, uh, which everybody who tries to do this experiences, like, you know, repeatedly, most, or at least most of us do anyway. Um, but it's also like, it's a re- it seems to be like a recurring theme in your work. You know, you're interested in this, um, you know, failure and success dichotomy. Uh, you're interested in, I think, like power, inequality. Like, I kind of, I sense these things in your work anyway. I don't know if you would agree or disagree, but... I'm curious to know about periods in your career, I guess, especially early on when things weren't going well and you were failing, like how dark did it get for you and how did you work through that? Well, in a way it got pretty dark for me, but in a way it feels self-indulgent too, because nobody put it, you know, nobody puts a gun to your head and says, be a, be a fiction writer. Um, so I, you know, in a way, any, all of these things, you know, I brought on myself because I was doing this thing. But yeah, the, early on, I published my first book with a small press called Open City. It doesn't exist anymore, but they were they were wonderful, and um, you know, it, it, that was a really that was a formative event for me, just because it was a nice way to enter into into the into the world with a book. It was very low key and, um, and intimate with the editors. And, um, you know, since they, I think they paid me $3,000. So at least you got paid. I didn't feel, yeah, exactly. But I didn't feel like some great burden, um, in that sense. And, uh, and then, you know, and then stuff happened and stuff happens to writers all the time. So I, you know, the next, the next book I was lucky to place with a large publisher, it, you know, and um, it came out at a really bad time for the kind of work it was. And wait, but this and, was, this was the subject, Steve. That's not it. It was published. Yeah, on, it was the published subject, on, Steve. But it was published on nine eleven, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is not ideal timing, probably to launch something, you know. No, 
No pun but, intended. No, but there were books that were perfect for that moment. You know, not and you know, I was a young writer and I I wasn't really I I didn't feel competitive with that with a book like The Corrections which came out around that time and was a phenomenon, you know. So it was just about what, you know, certain things were right in that moment. Um it's weird how that happens. Like certain art like meets its cultural moment just like with this like ideal timing, you know. It seems Yeah. To- I don't know how that happens. I don't think anybody does. But. No, you can't plan that. You just write your work. You just do your work. You write your stuff and um, control that. Okay. But, um, but so, yeah, so then that, the then I had a hard time selling the next book because, well, nobody bought the, that first book, that first novel. And, um, and I went through, you know, as people do, as lots of people do, it's no no great accomplishment. I went, you know, was rejected by dozens of publishers. This is for Homeland? Yeah. And then that, and that was a kind of bleak time just because I was, I got married around then and, you know, <laughs> I was super depressed. And, uh, I didn't have... Great steady, honeymoon. Great honeymoon. Uh, yeah. I didn't have steady work and um, I was just, I just really didn't know what was going to happen and I just kind of thought, I didn't think this was the end of me writing because that's not what it was about. But I thought in terms of publishing, it's not going to, you know, I should not expect to keep going. And, uh, at least for now. And, and that was kind of, I was disappointed by that feeling. Um, especially around this kind of such a, such a institution as marriage, which is kind of about, Everyone's spirits being up, right? Sure. <laughs> but but uh, then it got it did get published in in the UK and 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 somehow that convinced um, some people here who kind of who had wanted to do it earlier but maybe didn't have the balls. The, no, it wasn't. <laughs> a lot of them didn't have the balls. Yeah. But there were uh, some people. I had a friend, Ethan Nasowski at FSG, who wanted to do it but didn't have the juice at that moment. Right. And then Lauren Stein was at FSG, and he really wanted to do it. This is now a year later. And um, and he was not able to do it just... He had to do this paperback original thing through Picador. But it, and it came out, and for, you know, no money, but it came out. And that was, you know, that that was a great thing for me. Well, it's like it's almost like I mean you have to have, you had to have felt a sense of sort of glorious vindication because that book was really well received, you know. And so yeah, that was the thing, you know. For me, it was just the sense that, and all through that time, you know, I remember my agent would say, you know, I'm not crazy. I know this is good. Um, I was having a lot of doubt about myself. It just you know, even though you know better than to judge yourself by the you know. The verdict of a of a commercial editor, um, but it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard. I mean, forget commercial editor. Just anyone, you know. Like, right. Yeah, but you know, a lot. Of, you know, some of them just didn't. Some, a lot of them really liked the book and still wouldn't publish it. No, that's what that was the annoying part. Um. So yeah, maybe it was a question of balls. Maybe you know they they would say things like we don't know how to sell it. And they, I, all, they always say that though. With yeah. Some, with something like the word, does the word quirky has that ever been thrown around in describing you? I hate yeah. that word. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible word. It's so awful. It's basically that's a, 
It's an That's a stop the conversation word. Yeah, as soon as someone calls me quirky, I know I'm fucked. It's just yeah. it's over, you know. Yeah, it's like as a friend of mine said, when whenever they say we're big fans. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So, but nowadays, I have to imagine you write a book, you feel fairly confident that it's going to find its way into print, or no? Do you still fear? Well, well, because of these, you know, I know that. You, I feel more confident, yes, but I also know that things could turn. Um, and I've seen really writers who are heroes to me not be able to publish their books anymore. Shit. You know, because they might have been huge 20 years ago, but no longer. So, you know, these things, that, these things go, go through changes. There's a lot of flux in it, but, you know, right now I feel pretty pretty good yeah. yeah and what about staying vital i mean um it's still a ways off for you but i mean i this is something i think about i'm in my mid-30s and um i look forward and it's like i, I look at riders who manage to stay vital well into their um what do you call them golden years 70s yeah. 80s like how does mm -hmm. that happen like do you have a sense of how you plan to keep yourself creatively vital and do you have an, like a, a sense of how that's done well, I don't. I mean, I, I hope that I can do that, but I mean, I've been winging it so far, so I'm not sure if I'm ever going to have a good plan. I have a theory, and I'll, I'll run it by you. Like, and maybe you know, this is the only thing I can come up with. But I feel like a lot of uh, I feel like a lot of artists and people in general, the older they get, the less open they are to the new stuff. And or to just listening to new stuff, new music or reading new books by young people or whatever. And that you look at like I look I, for whatever reason, musicians are always the ones that spring to mind. But I think of like, you know, musicians who age well and continue to put out good records. They, they, just, they, they listen to everything. I get that sense of them like a guy like, you know, Bob Dylan, just to kind of reach, right. reach for an easy one. Like I, I just have this sense and I could be totally wrong, but I think he listens to everything. <laughs> and yeah, that. Yeah. Maybe that's how he does it, you know, as opposed to sort of just shutting the door and saying, I like what I like and I'm set in my ways. And I think that can be maybe a, a death knell for your creative juices. Although what you, I, 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 I like that. And I think that's probably true. Although I also think about somebody like Philip Roth and I, and I wonder, I guess he must've stayed open to things, but he also sort of, kept refining and refining his thing that to a point that it, it could he could bring it to new levels later in life well it, it sounded like to me like when i would read late interviews with him he was reading a lot more nonfiction. the older that he got yeah know? i think you sort of just have to i think you in a, to a to a degree it's not just necessarily taking in what everybody else is taking in but remaining like really interested and like reading or listening or whatever to what really gets you off you know and like that's that's it. I mean, you know. It might also be the case, you know, that you read the new stuff because it also is going to remind you of the old stuff. And it's the the combination of the two that maybe keeps you uh keeps you in the game. Because you know, I you know, you get to a certain point and you start reading the new stuff and it's some of it's really fresh, but even the the fresh stuff uh Reminds you of some, something from a long time ago. Um, things tend tend to seem more 
cyclical the older you get. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but um, but um, so you know, I think you keep drawing from the past and from from the present. And that's the plan going forward. <laughs> and you may be drawing from from traditions you you didn't really delve into before. So there's always a wealth of stuff that you didn't really deal with. And do you see yourself writing uh, fiction ex- uh, exclusively, or do you have like plans to maybe like do essays? Or I mean, I could see you writing great humor essays, or doing some sort of journalistic thing, or a memoir. Any of that in the works? Or well, I do occasional journalism. I I, I write essays sometimes, reviews. So I, I I dip into that sometimes, but it's just for me that. There's, I always have this feeling of urgency. I just, I feel like time's running out all, and um, and it is actually. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you're actually, uh, I I really, and it comes from having you know, I have my writing, I have my job, and I have my family, and um, it, you can I you know, and I always say I can do two really well, you know, at the same time, and I'm and I'm not going to. Uh, give up, you know, take time off from my family so I can just concentrate on writing and teaching. Um, so it's, it's either writing or, or not, you know, or just concentrating on teaching that, that tends to be the case. And I think, so what, when I do have time, when I do have that summer, say, um, and, and for instance, I'm on leave right now this semester, uh, it's, I'll, you know, I might do other things, but I'm also really conscious of the fact that this is this is fiction time i have to i have to do the primary work which for me is fiction well and it's nice to sometimes have time you know it's nice to have these other things out there uh like you know just the demands of family i I get that i have a young child like it it does give you a sense of focus that you might not have otherwise if it's just you and you've got all the time in the world you know right that can sometimes be a bad thing well when i yeah when i was younger my you know I could spend all day getting ready to write, you know, drink a pot of coffee, then, then, uh, take a long nap. (laughs) 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 And then, and then at about 4 PM, you know, I'm ready to go. Yeah. And, uh, I call that the preamble. I always have a nice preamble. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Then, but nowadays you just have, you know, you hit the ground running, you, Oh, there's 20 minutes right now. Okay, let me go check in with this thing I'm writing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was like, you just I, for some reason I was just thinking of a conversation I had with Susan Strait, and she like writes in her car, and I'm, I always think that's the most badass thing I've ever heard. You know? Yeah, <laughs> just gets in her like minivan and like drives off to a quiet road and like takes a half an hour. You know, she parks. Um, so does she park? Oh yeah, yeah, she does. Park. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> At least I hope she does. That would be even more badass if she didn't. You know, because uh, like I, I knew a guy. Who, I knew a guy who had. He built this clipboard that attached to his steering wheel, and he always had you know paper in it and a pencil hanging from the string. Jesus. So he could write while he drove. <laughs> yeah, I had a friend in high school who used to like read books while driving, which was a, seemed a little bit precarious. But yeah, well. As long as she's still alive. Yeah, she's she. It's a oh, she. she. Yeah, yeah. She, she's still with us. So that's good news. Good. So I want to ask you. I know uh, we got to wrap up somewhat soon, but I want to ask you a question because this um, has been happening to me, and because I look up to you, I think you're uh, you're doing it really well, and I love the fact that um, you've found well, a thank way. Thank you. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I, I, you're. 
I lean towards the comedic in my work. Um, that's just like my bent as a person. It's sort of just what comes out, uh, or at least that, that's what I'm hoping for. It's what I like to. It's what I like to read best. Um, and there's a part of me, and I was having this conversation at a party just this past weekend, where I was talking to a, a friend of mine, another writer. I, I was probably like a little drunk, and we we both were, and we both started confessing at the same time that uh, you know often in the past. I don't know, several months, I've had this feeling of being muted or stuck uh, or overwhelmed by how much writing is out there, like in print, online, the endless amount of new books that come out, which I think I have like a heightened sensitivity to because of the work that I do on this show and then also with the nervous breakdown. It's like you're just constantly aware of of the pipeline, you know? Uh, And then you're online and it's just like there's a point at which I say to myself – like, what can I possibly add to this? And I'm curious to know if you've ever felt like that. And if so, how did you get over it? And if not, like, how can I get over it? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm often overwhelmed by the question of what to read because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Situation. Um, you know, you, and you read, you know, all these rave reviews of new books and you think, well, I'm not going to read them all, but. So anyway, I do feel overwhelmed in that sense. Um, I don't know, uh, except I've always found that I was always kind of oscillating between, you know, a t- you know, awful self-loathing and and incredible self-regard, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I'm just it's just always a pendulum swinging back and forth. And, uh, that, you know, and that energy actually powers, powers me forward, I guess. But, um, and the good work probably happens somewhere in the middle. That's like, exactly, exactly. But I think that, yeah, at a a certain point, you kind of have to position yourself against all of, all of that stuff and say, somehow can, you know, keep telling yourself that this needs to be there. I don't know if all that other stuff needs to be there, but this needs to be there. Um, nobody's nobody's saying it like this, and hope that that's true. So it's basically like <laughs> delusion. You have to delude yourself. <laughs> well, yes, I think that's you know, one of, I think that's all artists have to do that. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's a, I mean, it's a good, it's a point that I don't know necessarily gets made explicitly a lot of the time. Like you almost have to like. I mean, I know you have to suspend disbelief to get inside the world of your story, but you almost also have to suspend disbelief. Um, about the world itself and the literary world itself, and do you know what I'm saying? Like you have. Yeah, to- no, I, I, a friend of mine has talked about. You know, he not he. It's important for him to not only know who this his narrator is, but who he is to be writing this kind of book. Um, he has to figure that out for himself, um, which seems daunting, but. Yeah, you you do have to, and you have to be. You have to sort of trick yourself into being a little bit naive about it and uh and uh and, and a little angry well you don't have to trick yourself most people <laughs> are a little easy. angry i was gonna say that's easy i got that one yeah no and part for me i can't i have to say that's always been a little bit of it well i find that and you know a little you know i'm gonna fucking show them yeah well i think that's that's a thing like i always call it the angry nerd yeah, uh, there's like one of those. It's like usually like a quietly angry, 
Like you don't, you know, it's like always, you, I had no idea he was so angry, you know, like it's somebody right. who's sort of like affable and even like uh, overly polite, but like deep inside burns the angry nerd. <laughs> right. And it's, you know, it's, it's a weird, you know, I'll show them, I'll give them so much sexual pleasure. They won't know it hit them. <laughs> so much and, truth. It's yeah. coming. Uh, you know, but I was thinking, you know, I'm just trying to think of other other modes for it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, you're so, you're, you build up all this anger so you can actually create something that other people enjoy. Right, right. But, it, you know, I guess it's, you know, the really, the great anorexic baker or something. Um, or something like that. Anyway, I think it would be anorexic. Um, anyway, there's there's something there's something really dark at the, at the core of it. There's something probably uh, unsavory at the core of wanting to publish. Well, but also I think like you know, and I think that's true. But I think like if we're talking about your work specifically, and then people who uh, write in a comedic mode, you know, or whether that's explicit on the front end or that's just what happens on the back end, um, you know, I think that there's always like if you know if if you produce satire. Uh, or uh, a novel of um, that combines the funny and the literary. There's always anger somewhere in the in the core of that. And, yeah. And so, talk a little bit about being a funny novelist, because uh, here's my thing. Like, I always say that like I like art that makes me laugh, like well, laugh while wincing. Like that's my favorite kind of art because I think it most accurately reflects the way that I experience the world, uh, which is that it's like you know it's funny. And it's miserable, and it's beautiful, and it's like terrifying, and often all at the same time. And so, you know, it's not that I can't read a book that's like strictly in the in a dramatic mode, and and not enjoy it. I can totally enjoy work like that, whether it's a movie or a book or whatever. But I find most transcendent work that can do all of that in one piece, and that's what I always try to aspire to. Because, you know, like I'm sure you can. I, I think you'll agree that like you know, there's, there's some pretty miserable realities that we have to try to cope with and like i have a hard time um like addressing or confronting any of it without trying to be funny like i love and think that there's something really noble in finding humor amid all of that and so can you talk about how you do that and why you do that well that's first of all your description of it is exactly how i how i feel um i don't know something you said earlier about how it just comes out that way i think some of it's that way for me too. Um, I, you know, if I sit down and say I'm just going to write this hilarious but sad uh, story about, you know, how we live life and how we suffer through life, and but how it's how there's biting humor there too. Uh, you know, if I plan it, it's not going to work. But it's kind of a filter. It's a that I already have. Um, it's probably just the way, yeah, like you said, it's the way I receive the world. It's the way I, I see it. And um, sometimes I want to work against it because I think that, you know, oh, I should be some other way. Um, but it's just, it's, it's the way it kind of tumbles out onto the, onto the page. I, uh, I don't know. You think that I, do you, do you think that comedic writing and literature um, 
and I think like in the, the same could be said in movies. It doesn't necessarily get its just due from the critical establishment. Do you have any of that feeling? Like it's like not taken seriously. Well, yeah, I mean, I had somebody was asking me some questions and said something. You know, how you know you? It's interesting how you combine the comic and the literary, as though those are you know opposites. When, when to me, you know, what, what, like you said, what art, I don't trust art that isn't uh, on some level funny. Right. Um, because life is on some level funny. And sometimes on a very high level. Uh, so, a very high level of funny. So, it's, uh, it all, it's always strange when people, think that these things can't coexist when they just coexist every minute of your life. Tragedy, comedy, drama. I mean, I, I'm kind of interested in the, in the descriptor serial comic. I think that, that describes it pretty well. Um, what, what I'm, what I'm after. Uh, yes, it's, um, it, the stuff that I've always liked is dead serious and very funny at the same time. Because so, that's 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 how that's what I think being alive is. So, were you a Vonnegut guy as a young man? Like, is that like a? Yeah, I loved Vonnegut. Sure. And then, what other? I mean, not, I know I hate I hate asking people this question because it kind of puts you on the spot. It's for some reason a hard question to answer. But like, are there other like lodestars in your reading life that you know, like novels or short story collections that feel kind of like desk references at this point because they were so instructive to you as you learned how to do it. Yeah, I mean, there were books that really uh, showed me that you could that you could do all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a book that I mean, so many writers have been affected by Barry Hanna. And he was certainly one, and Stanley Elkin was another for me. And uh, comic novels of Thomas McGuane were were. Uh, were big for me. Um, Grace Paley stories, um, and then later on there were there were others. But um, I just I just I guess I was just always drawn to writers who were honest and funny and inventive with the language. Yeah, they, they were getting getting at voice and getting at life through 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 the language, through the medium of, of writing. Well, I'll tell you, I think that uh, there's no doubt in my mind that you're doing, uh, you're doing it very well. And I congratulate you on the new uh, collection and on, and on all of your success. And what can I say? I'm a big fan, and I'm going to be interested to see um, you know, what happens as you go down the road. Oh, thanks so much, Brad. All right, you guys, there it is. That's Sam Lipsight. His new story collection is called The Fun Parts. It is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can find them online at the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, thanks to Brian Eno for the uh, track that played during the mail sequence. I believe that song is called Stars, so go download that one. Uh, and hey, don't forget to download the app. You can get the free official Other People app. It is the best way to listen to this program. It's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. 
New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can organize your favorite episodes. And better yet, uh, you can also access the full archives and premium content via the app. So go get the app, okay? Uh, All right, I feel good. I feel good about today's show. I'm happy that Sam talked to me. He's doing good work. He makes funny literature that also makes you wince. And I like to laugh while wincing. Let's all do that right now. Let's all laugh while wincing. Ready? Uh, Actually, let's not do that. I think it's impossible to do that on command. Please remember that Oscar Wilde spoke in St. Joseph, Missouri, one week after the shooting of Jesse James, and that E.M. Forster lived with his mother until her death at 66. That's all for now, you guys. Thanks, as always, uh, for tuning in and listening. Thanks for spreading the word about the show. Thanks for the letters and so on and so forth. I really appreciate it. I'll be back on Sunday with another conversation with another person who is a book person, another lovely and talented person, gender neutral. You're lovely. You are talented. Uh, and I'm, I'm an American hero who rescued a woman from her death. Can you believe that?